Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ying Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Ying is, is joined by Christopher Joy. I'm Chief Investment Officer of Coolabar and also a Portfolio Manager. Quite a lineup in terms of topics. Today we'll be talking about markets in the major bank senior rally that we've seen, why the big banks have never faced more competition, whether high yield debt is just really equities in disguise, the latest developments in the housing market, whether the RBA will keep cutting rates and more on quantitative easing, and why the next year could be very good. Okay, you guys, let's talk about markets then. I'll cover both October and November. In October, we saw pretty solid returns. Uh, the Osbond floating rate note index delivered 14 basis points. To put that in context, uh, the RBA's cash rate only returned six basis points, and the best TD rates were probably delivering about 14. Across all of our floating rate strategies, on both a pre and post fees basis, so after all costs, uh, we substantially outperformed the Osborne floating rate note index. In the hybrid market, we saw returns soften in October. So the ASX hybrid market actually suffered a small 0.17% loss. Again, our um, hybrid specific products significantly outperformed. The sogginess in October was driven by a new, quite large major bank hybrid issue. And this was CBA Pearls 12. That priced at about 300 over bank bills more or less fair value. We've seen a big rally in hybrids in November. Specifically, we've seen the market jump 50 basis points over um, the 12th and 13th of November, conveniently one day before the new CBA hybrid deal lists. And it looks like it will trade materially above par. At this point, CBA printed um, about one and a half billion in this hybrid, and it has been followed by a smaller Suncorp hybrid uh, deal that is also pricing at 300 over bank bills. That's only expected to be, I believe, around 300 to 400 million dollars in size. The CBA hybrid was a new deal. It wasn't rolling an existing hybrid maturity. So that meant that one and a half billion was all fresh new money. The Suncorp deal is rolling something called SunPE, which is an existing hybrid security. And most of that three to 400 mil will come from holders of the SunPE hybrid that will roll into the new deal. In October, we interestingly saw the equity market fall 40 basis points, and that was correlated with quite poor performance from the Osborne Composite Bond Index. This is a fixed rate, not a floating rate bond benchmark. So when you know the global economy performs and long-term interest rates start rising, fixed rate bonds will materially underperform floating rate notes. And we had the Composite Bond Index down almost 50 basis points in October precisely because of those higher long-term yields. Our uh, active composite bond strategy outperformed by about 20 basis points in that month alone. Over the last 12 months in that active composite bond strategy, we have returned 13.4% before all fees. It's not a public strategy. It's not available to retail investors. If you're listening, this is only an institutional product. Uh, we can't quote net returns because the fee terms are confidential. The comp bond index itself has done 10.1%. So we've outperformed by about uh, 3.3% or 330 bips. What else happened in October? I think that's pretty much it. In November, we've seen some pretty robust performance in our portfolios and in credit generally. Partly in portfolios that can hold hybrids, that's been fueled by that recent 50 bips rally that I referred to earlier. 
But as you mentioned uh, at the open, Ingers, we've also seen a pretty sudden striking recent rally in major bank senior bonds. Now that's because when you look at the cost of uh, major bank senior bonds in US dollars and euros, over the last few months, they have been trading on credit spreads that have been much, much wider, up to about 25 basis points wider in US dollars than the same bonds in Australian dollars. We've actually been buying those securities and uh, hedging them back to Aussie dollars because of those superior spreads. We bought them and then those spreads have now compressed back to Aussie dollar levels and we sold all those securities in both euros and uh, US dollars. And we have faced for the last few weeks an interesting situation where the cost of money for the major banks is basically the same in all currencies, or at least those three currencies. And indeed, it's actually cheaper for them to issue bonds in US dollars and euros in some parts of the curve. So we've certainly encouraged the banks to consider those markets. As I mentioned, we've been investing in them. And we saw Westpac do a very nice um, US dollar senior bond, 5.25 year maturity, swapping back <clears throat> more or less flat to the Aussie curve. And the day they priced that deal, it was a 1.25 billion US dollar deal. The day they priced that deal, the Aussie curve crunched in very tight because basically they were removing the specter of supply risks in Aussie dollars. So we've seen major bank five-year senior spreads crunch in from about 80 basis points to about 70, probably two-ish right now. So that's powered performance in that particular sector. Obviously, we could easily get some Aussie dollar supply before the end of the year, but it does seem that with the major banks doing a lot of subordinated bond issuance, so NAB just recently completed a $1.4 billion um, 12 non-core 7 tier 2 subordinated bond that priced at um, 202 basis points above bank bills. And every extra dollar of subordinated bond funding is a dollar that the banks don't need to issue in terms of their senior bonds, which is why that's actually our biggest portfolio position. Major bank senior is also RBA repurchase eligible, which makes it incredibly liquid and safe. As regular listeners will know, it was recently upgraded to AA minus stable by S&P. We have seen a lot of RMBS issues a huge RMBS issuance. I think we had 14 deals launch or price in October. We've been um, allocating to RMBS. I've probably put about 400 million bucks into RMBS in the last few months alone, having exited the sector between 2017 and 19 as house prices were falling. That RMBS issuance has at the margin created I guess a bit of a switching dynamic in Major Bank Senior where some would say the two are um, relatively fungible. The problem of course is Major Bank Senior has much, much more liquidity than RMBS. Uh, It's much, much easier to get in and out of. The other kind of, I guess, positive dynamic for Major Bank Senior is the major banks have all been raising equity. So we had a $2.5 billion cap raise from Westpac and NAB is looking to raise $2.5 billion and all that additional equity capital delevers their balance sheet and reduces the amount of senior debt they require. So uh, interesting times, uh, I guess geopolitically, also interesting times. Brexit seems to have been removed as a kind of existential threat for the time being, at least until the UK election is resolved. The trade wars, uh, some of those tensions have, again, for the time being, diffused. In May, we wrote, we thought there were two possible outcomes, uh, either no deal at all or a completely meaningless deal. We seem to be in the uh, latter camp, so we'll see what transpires there. But everyone seems to be focused on the 2020 election for the US presidency. Then, of course, there are the ongoing dramas in Hong Kong, an interesting situation that we're watching closely. And I guess the final geopolitical dynamic 
that's worth mentioning is just the um, advent of this new form or this new round of QE. We've got the Fed doing QE, the ECB started QE in November, and increasingly the uh, consensus has embraced our uh, very contrarian 10 May forecast for a central case of RBA QE. Wow, sounds intense, Chris. Now, let's talk about competition in Australia's ostensibly concentrated banking system. And I would start by saying that we believe the competition regulators inquiry into the big banks and the front book, back book fracker that reportedly precipitated it is bogus. Let's just get a few facts straight. First, all businesses, including banks, are free to discount new product sales. Trying to prevent banks from doing so would be akin to telling Coles it can't offer cheaper products to customers because it'd be unfair on those who previously paid higher prices. The market, not regulators, should determine clearing prices. And if bank customers think rates are too high, they're free to vote with their feet and tap lower rates elsewhere. Secondly, the big four banks have never faced more competition, nor been at a greater regulatory disadvantage to their peers. They are far and away the most heavily regulated and hence constrained businesses in Australia. They even pay more than a billion dollars each year in a unique big bank tax that PM Scott Morrison had introduced in 2017 to force them to compensate taxpayers for the cost of funding subsidies they garner from being too big to fail. This is the bank levy of 0.06% annually on the value of all their wholesale liabilities. In big ticket corporate lending, the big banks are grappling with ferocious competition from Japanese and Chinese banks that have been using their much lower required returns and therefore cheaper interest rates to capture huge gains in market share. In the corporate bid market, super funds are the new force. So they're stepping up direct lending to businesses via sophisticated fund managers such as Metrics Credit Partners and or their own internal teams, which is disintermediating traditional banks. And in the bank's biggest balance sheet exposure, resi mortgage lending, there's been an explosion of non-banks, which Chris, you predicted back in April 2016, off the back of a booming securitization market. Since the start of 2017, Aussie lenders have been able to raise more than $120 billion of funding by securitizing or selling their home loan portfolios via bonds known as residential mortgage-backed securities, or RMBS, as we like to commonly refer to it. This is especially impressive considering that house prices fell by a record margin between 2017 and 2019, and mortgage arrears climbed to the highest level since the 1991 recession. The tsunami of RMBS issuance has been powered by immense offshore demand for these high-yielding AAA-rated bonds from Asian investors and more recently European and North American instos. Interest in the securities is likely to surge now that the housing market is recovering as a result of the RBA's efforts to reduce the jobless rate to its full employment target. So while the big banks are being regulated out of their skins, Non-bank resi lenders have no such restraints. They can run as much leverage as they want and offer home loans to punters on terms that are far more liberal than those the big four have to abide by because of APRA's extremely strict responsible lending rules. Yeah, I agree, Yingyi, and this is why many banks are pushing so-called near-prime products. 
which encompass anything easier to get approved than a loan from a big bank. And you're also seeing these non-banks specialising in so-called non-conforming finance uh, with much looser lending standards and loftier default rates than a normal major bank home loan. Indeed, it's kind of akin to a new form of subprime. Like Asian banks have done in corporate lending, non-banks are capturing significant market share and I think they will over the next decade or so emerge as a fifth pillar in the resi mortgage space. I completely concur with your analysis. And as you say, because they're not regulated by APRA on a day-to-day basis, they do have this intrinsic competitive advantage over their larger rivals. Now, there is a small rider to that. APRA can technically regulate non-banks in extremis if they present a financial stability threat. Uh, to the system. So the poor old B-banks have to contend with ASIC suing them for being too liberal with their lending practices, while paradoxically the RBA and the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg excoriate them and ASIC for being too tough. I mean, it's pretty confusing. A final new source of competition I reckon is is the wave of neobanks that APRA is granting licenses to willy-nilly. Uh, including you know, the digital banks like Vault, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but I think it's Shinja, uh, and 86,400, and the small business lending specialist that I think is pretty well-known, Judo. Great guys at Judo. <coughs> Shout out to those uh, fellas. So it's gone from being almost impossible to get a new banking license in Australia. Indeed, APRA was you know, well-known for decades uh, for having the view that uh, the smaller number of uh, deposit takers it regulated, the better. To today, it's become a very straightforward exercise, particularly as uh, politicians have applied pressure on the regulator to increase the number of deposit takers. And that's obviously been also, I think, amplified by the influence of the Royal Commission. In late 2015, we did prophesize, I think, on this subject that as the large banks, the major banks specifically, were being forced um, as a result of the 2014 financial system inquiry, and I wrote the terms of reference, uh, or at least the draft terms of reference with David Murray for the FSI uh, for Joe Hockey several years prior. But as they were being forced, the four major banks to deleverage their balance sheet, or balance sheets plural, which we'd long advocated, uh, their returns on equity would inevitably converge with their circa 11% cost of equity. And we said in 2015 that this would push valuations down from two to three times book value to one to two times book value. So the key forecast was you know, for a big decline in price to book multiples and also ROEs. Now, of course, if a bank's ROE is equal to its cost of equity, which is more or less what we were projecting, it should theoretically trade at book value, as in it's very hard to demand a premium to book value. A few months prior to that forecast that we published in 2015 in the AFR, the CBA uh, had reported a world-beating four-year statutory, that is real, return on equity of 18.7%. And CBA had been trading as high as uh, I think three times book value years. And Westpac and ANZ weren't far behind if memory serves. Uh, I think their ROEs at that time were about 16% and they were trading at about two and a half and two times book value respectively. The one consistent laggard is sleepy old NAB, which lodged in 2015 a miserly, comparatively so, ROE around 12%. Although it still traded at close to two times uh, book value at that time. So, you know, the Aussie big banks back in 2015 were the most profitable retail deposit takers on earth. 
and their valuations absolutely reflected it. In the AFR, I actually wrote a letter to Warren Buffett explaining that this uh, profitability was completely an artifice of leverage. And that's you know, demonstrated by the fact that the major banks' return on assets as opposed to their return on equity. So their return on their unlevered assets was actually very, very ordinary and inferior to the best US banks, groups like US Bank Corp and Wells Fargo. And once policymakers bloodily acquiesced to our calls for them to substantially delever the big banking behemoths, of course, this return on equity mirage that was propagated by leverage um, naturally disappeared. So if you fast forward to the present day, um, this uh, contrarian 2015 projection has well and truly played out. On a statutory basis, ROEs have slumped by one third to the high single digit or low double digit domain. In the 2019 financial year, ANZ and NAB reported statutory ROEs around 10%. Uh, CBA's ROE has dropped from almost 19% in 2014 to around 12% today, and Westpac uh, sits in the middle. And valuations have followed in lockstep. So we've seen ANZ, NAB and Westpac all trading around one and a half times book value. uh, And CBA's multiple has slumped from three times to two times book value. I guess the silver lining is that the much lower leverage and business model risk as the big banks divest offshore exposures and quit their non-core activities, you know, life, uh, insurance, wealth, advisory, funds management, proprietary trading, you know, UK and Asian exposures and so forth. This comes with a substantial reduction in their risk. And that's absolutely terrific news for the voiceless and off-neglected bank stakeholders who supply 95% of their funding, namely uh, depositors and bondholders like us. And it's not all bad news for the shareholders who are providing the remaining 5% of funding. If the banks can exploit their enormous scale economies to slash their people costs, as we've long advocated, which account for about 60% of their operating costs, and we've proposed they do this through AI and automation, and they transform themselves into higher returning technology businesses, they might one day be able to recover those previous valuation multiples years. Chris, so talking about getting better returns, let's turn now to discuss whether high yield debt is just really equities in disguise. One advisor recently argued to us, as you probably remember, that, quote, it's hard to survive on 0% if you're a retiree, while explaining why his clients are shifting out of term deposits into a listed high yield or junk bond fund that can leverage these equity-like assets up to two times to enhance returns. So I guess we can now say with confidence that our predicted search for yield thematic has landed with a thump on Aussie doorsteps. We're seeing it everywhere as cash is redeployed into assets with higher probabilities of loss and sketchy liquidity. In fact, having no liquidity or no real ability to trade the underlying assets is an advantage if it means that the investment reports no volatility. While many of these assets have similar risks to equities, that downside is hidden during the good times because of the lack of liquidity until we get a shock. So when that shock emerges, that portfolio is going to be forced to take a write down. To be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with looking for more yield or beta as we like to call it. And this is arguably what the RBA wants to encourage with its cash rate cuts. Many of the products that are exploiting the search for yield are excellent. You just have to understand what you're getting into though. We have, for example, repeatedly seen money shift out of TDs into an, an, quote, investment account, actually a mortgage trust, 
that holds below prime home loans that have paid over 5% after fees over the last year. This lender charges clients hedge fund-like fees of between 1.5% and 2.5% annually for the privilege of giving them exposure to its below prime loans, which have default rates that are more than twice the arrears or normal prime home loans. Older heads might recall several mortgage trust froze, preventing all redemptions during the GFC. This begs the question whether the folks making these investments understand the liquidity and risk trade-offs inherent in them. There are three core beta levers high yield fund managers pull to increase returns. The first is interest rate duration or yield curve risk. If the yield curve slopes up over time, which it normally does, you get more return by holding longer dated fixed rate rather than lower risk floating rate bonds. And if yields go up, or down, you lose or win, simply put. A second beta lever is default risk. So companies with inferior credit ratings and higher probabilities of defaulting on their bonds have to pay loftier interest rates. The third risk driver is liquidity. Bonds that are difficult to buy and sell after they have been issued typically carry a risk premium. And a final variable to consider is the currency. Most of the bonds in global high yield portfolios are not issued in Aussie dollars. Simply hedging global high yield into our currency has historically improved returns by 1.5% annually since 2007 compared to holding the bonds in US dollars. However, unfortunately, this hedging benefit has swung 180 degrees and now reduces rather than boosts your returns by roughly 1% each year. This makes historical analysis complicated because you need to understand that past returns are artificially inflated via a hedging benefit that has disappeared. So this begs the question, are some high yield bonds just really equities in disguise, Chris? So Yingers, we've published a chart and a table that you can see for free on Livewire. I think the article is actually entitled precisely along the lines of the question that you just asked me, and that is uh, high yield bonds, just equities in disguise. So have a look for it online if you're interested in the chart and table. And we can address the question quantitatively by comparing the global high yield benchmark index. In this case, we're using the Bloomberg Barclays Global High Yield Total Return Index, which is a flagship measure for the sector with Aussie shares plus dividends. And our table in that Livewire article shows high yield bond returns globally in several different formats. The first is in fixed rate format with that yield curve or duration risk embedded in it. And we then effectively hedge that out and show high yield returns in floating rate format with all the duration hazards removed or hedged out. And certainly the high yield bond LIT, some of them have a lot of duration risk, about six, seven years duration risk, and they would have been pummeled a bit of late. Others are kind of mainly hedged to floating rates, some in between, but uh, you know that yield curve or interest rate risk is a big, big risk factor. Just to give you some uh, hard numbers on that, about, um, I think, what was it, since 1999, when we last looked at the data, the fixed rate composite bond index had had negative months in roughly 27% or more than one quarter of all months since 1999. The floating rate note benchmark in Australia, which has basically the same issues or similar issues, uh, issuers and very, very similar credit risk, in contrast has only had negative months about 4% of the time. And that's because that interest rate bet you're making when you invest in a fixed rate bond is generating a huge amount of volatility. 
So hence we look at the high yield index in both fixed and floating rate formats. So starting with a, a focus on a, a floating rate US dollar high yield exposure, because that abstracts also away from the big, big shift in currency hedging and, and also duration impacts. And you mentioned that if you took US high yield and hedged into Aussie dollars in the past, it would have boosted your returns materially. But over the last few years, it's been a detractor and it is currently a detractor of about 1% per annum. So the best way to remove the influence of hedging is just to look at it in US dollars. So in US dollars, global high yield has delivered exactly the same 5.8% annual return as Aussie shares since January 2007, which obviously captures the impact of the GFC. So certainly in terms of raw returns, 100%, it is one for one with equities. If you, of course, adjusted for franking uh, credits, Aussie shares would have outperformed on a post-tax basis. Secondly, if we now move to risk, um, the global high yield index had about 11% annual volatility, uh, very, very high actually uh, since January 2007, which is very similar to the 13.5% annual volatility of Aussie shares plus dividends. If you add in the historic Aussie dollar currency hedging benefit, so if you again hedge US dollar high yield to Aussie dollars, high yield then outperforms before franking. And then if you also throw in duration risk, high yield will give you another boost. But again, I think most folks are leery about taking duration risk, particularly given where current interest rates are sitting and currency is now a return detractor rather than a return amplifier. Okay, but of course, volatility is only one measure of risk. Another way to think about risk is looking at worst losses. And so we did this and, and quantified it in the table. And global high yield bonds actually have a larger worst monthly loss of 18% relative to Aussie equities worst monthly drawdown since 2007 of 14%. So that's the worst, worst monthly loss. An alternative risk metric is the worst peak to trough loss. And here again, floating rate global high yield in US dollars has a very similar profile to equities with a maximum peak to trough losses of 42% during the global financial crisis compared to a 48% peak to trough loss for listed shares. So anyone who's moving out of term deposits and cash or very, very low risk floating rate credit into global high yield, even from hybrids to high yield, and we can talk about that later, please you know, be aware that you're basically taking equity risk. Uh, on that analysis, which is, I think, a, a very good global benchmark. So in summary, yes, the analysis suggests that global high yield has a very similar risk and return profile to shares. One difference is liquidity. And here again, uh, I think, you know, actually equities offer a benefit because it's much easier to buy and sell shares on an exchange than it is to exit over-the-counter sub-investment grade bonds. You know, an alternative would just be to buy high-yielding defensive equities. And Chris, another wrinkle to bear in mind here is knowledge. So retail investors know a lot about large listed companies than they do about the biggest members of the global high yield index, such as Telecom Italia, Tenet Healthcare, Altice France, Petrobras, Bosch Health or Sprint Corporation. That can be a good and a bad thing. Diversification is valuable, but information asymmetries can create sales risks. An obvious question is how listed hybrids fit into this mix, as you mentioned earlier. So between 2007 and 2019, SX hybrids have had half the return volatility of the global high yield index. Their worth monthly losses have been also about half that of high yield. Peak to trough losses were likewise sort of smaller. Performance has been similar, with the ASX hybrid index's 6.6% annual return over the last five years beating global high yield with and without duration risk. 
And this is despite the fact that major bank hybrids have substantially superior credit ratings to most high yield bonds. And indeed, as we saw recently, S&P sensationally upgraded major bank hybrids from a high yield double B plus credit rating to the all important investment grade band via a triple B minus rating, satisfying one of our boldest predictions here at Coolabar. Yeah, that's right, Yingyi. Uh, since July 2017, we've repeatedly forecast that S&P would upgrade the major banks' hybrids and subordinated bond ratings, which is actually an outworking of a very complex sequence of subsidiary projections that we've published. And I will say here, and I know people are always raving on about my modesty and humility, but I'm not aware of any other analysts, that's a joke guys, I'm not aware of any other analysts uh, locally or offshore who actually share this view. So our logic was really as follows. First in 2017, we predicted that the federal budget would return to surplus years ahead of head of the um, uh, credit rating agency, S&Ps, and the market's expectations. And that was important because it removes a key economic risk if it came to fruition for S&P. In April 2017, we also forecast that the housing boom would turn into an orderly 10% correction, mitigating Australia's biggest financial stability hazard. And both these events, of course, ultimately came to pass. And then finally, in April 2019, we were the first to call the sharp recovery in house prices, which is playing out. So the coalescing of these predictions informed our conviction that S&P would upgrade Australia's economic risk score, uh, and that's a specific, I guess, metric that S&P published, which it had downgraded in May 2017 on the back of housing bubble fears. And that's why the correction in house prices was important. It needed to be orderly for S&P, but equally our forecast that there would be recovery was important because they didn't want to see that correction sort of degrade down into a death spiral. Now, the consequence of this upgrade in uh, Australia's economic risk score that S&P made recently had the effect of reducing the risk weightings that S&P assumes when they estimate the major banks' risk-adjusted capital, or RAC, or RAC ratios, which in turn boosted their RAC ratios above a crucial 10% threshold. So they upgraded Australia's economic risk score, that reduced the risk weights, and that in turn boosted significantly the four major banks' RAC ratios above this uh, 10% ban. Now, APRA's uh, boss, Wayne Byers, had previously stated that securing RAC ratios over 10% was a valuable goal for the big banks because it would lift uh, their standalone credit profiles with S&P, known as an SACP, apologies for all the jargon guys, from uh, lowercase a minus to lowercase a. So this is actually a different rating uh, score. So the official uh, issuer credit ratings for the four major banks are double A minus, but this is something called a standalone credit profile rating, which is like an anchor rating and to get from A- minus to AA- minus, historically, S&P used to assume three notches of government support. By upgrading the economic risk score, uh, reducing the risk rates, increasing the RAC ratio, uh, that then in turn increased the SACP from A- minus to A. And when we actually, back in the day, aired this possibility that uh, APRA would force the major banks to benchmark themselves against uh, this 10% rack ratio threshold, they actually laughed at us. They laughed us out of the room. And when buyers actually mentioned this in a speech, uh, one of the major bank treasury teams told me they thought he'd had a quote-unquote brain explosion. The reason we were fixated on this 10% rack ratio, by the way, was the problem for the major banks was when S&P ranked them amongst the top 100 banks globally on rack ratios, they used to only sit around the 50th percentile, so the middle of the band. And APRA had an explicit goal of getting them to the top quartile. 
The problem was that, again, they weren't in the top quartile without a 10% rack ratio. To get there, there are a number of possible paths, and, and this was the one that ultimately um, we've uh, wittingly or unwittingly taken um, in, in terms of uh, the economic risk score. Now, the final knock-on consequence of the higher SACP is it automatically boosts the credit ratings on the major banks, hybrids, and subordinated bonds by one notch. So hybrids um, crucially go to triple B minus out of, as you mentioned, the uh, high yield bracket where they were previously at double B plus, and sub debt jumps to triple B plus. Interestingly, major bank sub debt is now carrying the same credit rating as the senior bonds issued by um, Bendigo and Bank of Queensland. And as I mentioned, it also reduces the government support assumptions underpinning the major bank senior double A minus rated bonds from three notches to two, um, and that's because the SACP has jumped from A minus to A, so you only need to move from A to A plus to double A minus to get to that double or minus rating. So therefore you only need two notches of government support. And that's positive for seniors. So it's positive right across uh, the capital stack. I think just kind of in closing on this this point on how we predicted this otherwise shock uh, S&P uh, series of upgrades to hybrids and sub-debt was that you know, really I think credit has to be attributed to prudent fiscal policy. The 2015 resolution of both the government and APRA to force the banks to effectively halve their risk-weighted leverage through um, boosting common equity T1 capital and APRA's efforts since 2014 to thwart housing bubble risks by requiring banks to land much more carefully. So well done APRA, well done Wayne Byers. On capital you guys have been brilliant. Uh, well, let me restate that. On core capital, you guys have been brilliant. On loss-absorbing capacity, um, I'm not as convinced as you guys know if you're listening. I think some of the folks at APRA do listen to the podcast. Shout out to you guys. We love you if you, if you are listening. Um, we're big believers in APRA's role. It's a singular mission in terms of protecting uh, bank creditors and particularly bank depositors. And it's focus on it's uh, you know zealous focus on system stability and safety, uh, as Byers recently reiterated in a, a speech the other day. Yin yin. Okay, Chris, let's move on to the RBA and whether they keep cutting rates. So I guess our view is that after three years of inertia, a new intellectual paradigm has emerged from within the RBA. It has gradually taken form in speech after speech from the governor, Phil Lowe, and his acolytes. And its increasingly lucid logic rubbishes the concerns of critics worried about the consequences of extremely low rates and our forecast for a sharp rise in national house prices, which is playing out right now. Understanding this new operating model is essential for all investors, and it has crucial consequences for portfolio construction. The first insight is that the need for low rates is not a temporary phenomenon but rather a powerful long-term dynamic driven by a fundamental excess of savings over the desire to invest in productive assets. This is being fueled by three factors. The aging of the global population coupled with elongated life expectancy, which means we need more savings to fund our retirements. Uh, the ascendancy of Asia, with Asia, sorry, which now accounts for one third of global economic output, where savings rates are generally higher than in the Western world because of skinnier social safety nets and narrower investment opportunity sets, and elevated global debt levels, which encourage additional savings to repay burgeoning liabilities, especially when income and wage expectations are much more modest than in the past. Lowe also cites a recent spike in global policy uncertainty, fueled by the trade wars, Brexit and disruption wrought by technology as a final variable that may be motivating additional risk aversion. A second innovation is this central bank's interpretation of its mandate. 
And for decades, many inside the RBA and those that anticipate its movements have considered Martin Place to be a relatively pure inflation targeter with a singular focus on price stability. More than any of his predecessors in the modern era, and certainly since the advent of inflation targeting in the early 1990s, Lowe has stressed the significance of the RBA's three legislated objectives, which we conceive of as a self-reinforcing triangular mandate. These goals are price stability, full employment, and a broader aspiration of maximizing the economic prosperity and welfare of the people. Lowe's logic as to how he satisfies this mission is simple and powerful. First, there are more than 100,000 Aussies out of work who should have a job. Put differently, the unemployment rate consistent with normal wages growth around 3.5% annually relative to currently anemic 2.5% wages growth and normal consumer price inflation or CPI between 2 and 3% is significantly below the prevailing 5.2% jobless rate. The RBA's best guess is that this idealized unemployment rate is between 4 and 4.4% and trending down over time. So by easing the cost of capital and hence hurdle rates for businesses, the RBA should motivate more investment activity, even if this transmission mechanism is more sluggish than it has been historically. This will support employment growth, which will help eliminate the excess of labor supply over demand. As this slack disappears, wages growth will climb, and it has clearly done in countries like the US where policymakers have crushed the unemployment rate to just 3.5%. And this appreciation in labor costs will eventually feed back into the price of consumer goods and services, which will allow the RBA to lift inflation back into its target 2 to 3% band. Well put, Yingers, and I think, importantly, financial stability concerns are no longer a handbrake. After house prices across Sydney and Melbourne dropped by a record 15% and 11%, respectively, between 2017 and 2019, and housing credit growth declined to the lowest levels ever recorded, the RBA, I think, uh, concurs with our view or our assessment that there are few anxieties about igniting another debt-fueled asset bubble in the short term. Even if we hit our enormously contrarian April 2019 forecast, from this year before the RBA rate cuts, that house prices would rise by 10% over the 12 months following the second RBA rate cut, which obviously we got in July, we will have simply clawed back the losses of the preceding three years. There are, um, having said that, bona fide financial stability hazards over the long run, especially given our expectation since 2016 that there's going to be a huge increase in lightly regulated non-bank lending as a result of the aforementioned boom in securitization. We discussed that earlier in this episode, coupled with the unprecedented regulatory crackdown on the ability of the banks to compete with these entities. In fact, um, and I want to make this very clear, we are forecasting a surge in subprime lending by non-banks tapping risk agnostic capital desperately searching for yield uh, including as you mentioned yingers and you put it you know i think very delicately as you would uh, you described it as below prime i'm talking about mums and dads investing in subprime mortgage trusts similar to the ones that blew up during the global financial crisis oh how history repeats itself yingers and i think what is especially uh, germane in this context is our new peak to trough prediction for national house prices during this upswing which could span years and that is now an increase of 30 percent 
or about 60% of the size of the last boom. Now, while this might give one pause, the RBA knows it can instantly cauterize financial stability perturbations through interest rate increases and or, of course, the introduction or reintroduction of those macro prudential constraints on lending standards and credit creation as its wiser sister, APRA, compellingly demonstrated during the prior bull market. It was, in truth, precisely these interventions that precipitated the 10.7% decline in national house prices uh, between 2017 and 2019, with a shove, of course, from the Royal Commission's irrational take on responsible lending and the spectre of Labor's capital gains tax and negative gearing policies crushing housing investor returns. The final dimension of this analysis is the RBA's recognition that it's missed its inflation employment and employment targets for years. This means we're left with, I believe, an emboldened institution that has high conviction it should do everything within its power to continue to reduce the cost of capital until it has confidence that its inflation, employment and prosperity triangle that you mentioned, years, and I agree with that analysis, as you know, is standing strong and true. Right now, unfortunately for the RBA, that triangle lies in tatters on the ground. And as we've been recording this episode, we've had live data from the ABS, the Labor Force Statistics, and the jobless rate has crept up, unfortunately, from 52 to 5.3%. Chris, one thing Lowe has ruled out is negative interest rates. Accepting, therefore, that there is an effective lower bound on the RBA's target cash rate of circa 0.5%, beyond which it should fundamentally threaten the viability of our banks, the RBA has no choice but to consider alternatives. The Commonwealth Treasury and Westpac's prescient chief economist, Bill Evans, have confirmed our analysis that this will likely involve targeting a wider range of interest rates over and above the overnight cash rate and its longer-term siblings, as represented by the risk-free interest rates on Gubby bonds. Two right yingers. Uh, Treasury has indeed advised Joshua Frydenberg that, quote, and this is now reading from Treasury advice, uh, quote, given Australia's financial system is dominated by bank lending to households, it is likely the RBA would first consider options, options aimed at lowering bank funding costs or supporting mortgage funding directly. This would involve either buying commercial bank bills or residential mortgage-backed securities, Treasury continued. Quote, the latter may be particularly attractive as the RBA already holds these assets as collateral as part of its existing operations. Sound familiar? Now, Treasury further supported our arguments that simply buying Gubby bonds, as you mentioned, to reduce risk-free yields is unlikely to trigger a wave of public borrowing because of the government's prudent commitment to repaying debt and or private sector credit creation, given most interest rates price off short-term bank funding costs, not long-term government bond yields. On this note, Westpac's um, Bill Evans, who you also mentioned, has noted that, quote, locking up a substantial portion of the available government bonds on the RBA's balance sheet might be counterproductive because the limited free supply of these assets could mean the RBA undermines their liquidity. On the other hand, and I'm obviously quoting from Bill Evans, I apologise for the, uh, the poor imitation, but anyway, he continues, on the other hand, uh, purchases by the RBA of residential mortgage-backed securities, RMBS, are likely to provide considerable support for the monetary policy transmission process by lowering funding spreads and providing the RBA with a sharp boost to its monetary accommodation objectives. But Chris, one problem with RMBS is that there is, again, only a limited stock of repurchase-eligible assets, and they only fund home loans, not corporate and small business finance 
which is where the lending deficiency is more acute. This is why ourselves, Treasury and Evans have concluded that any QE program contemplated by the RBA will likely have to consider term lending to banks via repurchase agreements and or purchases of repo eligible assets, including senior bank bonds, which is another arguably cleaner form of funding alongside the private sector agent. As the RBA reduces bank funding costs, this should assist in compressing otherwise elevated credit spreads on related securities it cannot touch, including bank hybrids that were recently upgraded by S&P into the triple B rated investment grade bucket, as you mentioned. Okay, Chris, let's talk about what you think is going to happen in the next year. Sure thing, Yingers, you're the boss. Um, I guess when you're running money, you've got to constantly occupy parallel universes. You know, you have to put yourself in one state of nature followed by another and another until you've iterated through all the potential permutations and combinations that make up the mind-bending distribution of outcomes that the world can conceivably take. And Yingers, you wonder why so many of us money managers are weird units. I will say, interestingly, on this topic, um, that writing my AFR columns is actually a helpful part of the process. Sometimes the ideas rush forth really quickly. Other times it takes a lot longer and it does feel like the cupboard is a bit bare. But I find that every single time I actually engage and my fingers touch the keyboard, it's like turning on the ignition in a part of my brain that's only animated when you actually write rather than speak. And once that engine starts, the words really do fly out, as you might have noticed by my somewhat long columns. It is cathartic being forced into the discipline of putting down your ideas in black and white, week in, week out, in a very public fashion, knowing that every man and their dog is going to try and hold me to account and bring down the big rig. <laughs> Jokes. But they are going to try and hold me to account if I get it wrong. And it does require a very delicate balancing act between two uneasy bedfellows, conviction on the one hand and humility on the other. <laughs> Again, I think there's an external perception that um, I'm lacking in humility. I think anyone who works inside Cooler by Capital, we have 21 full-time execs, nine analysts, four portfolio managers. Everyone knows I have conviction, but everyone also knows that I've got a lot of doubt in terms of my own thought processes, and I'm constantly second-guessing our processes. And we have a very, very open, flat architecture where everyone is involved, everyone's engaged. Pretty much every email in the business gets copied onto everybody. And yeah, it's actually, intellectually, it's a very egalitarian environment, um, which may not be obvious to outsiders. And I think sometimes I parody the caricature in my columns, as in I riff off it a bit. But coming back to the macro, day to day, we're obviously absorbed by individual asset pricing problems and the idiosyncrasies of the investment in question. But the truth is actually that our macro expectations are incredibly important, even more than perhaps we appreciate, Um, because they end up subtly permeating every aspect of our decision-making process, including the timing, sizing, pricing, and selection of any investment. The last year is a case in point. We've done enormous work on the probabilities around a range of macro puzzles, including the federal election, Obviously, we forecast Scott victory. The um, early return to budget surplus here in Australia, Trump's trade war, the capricious president himself, Brexit, the Hong Kong dramas, house prices, monetary policy, um, locally in the US and Europe, quantitative easing, local and global economic growth, responsible lending. Uh, we led that debate probably a year ahead of the market, analysing the two federal court cases in uh, my AFR columns. And the prospect, of course, of which, which we've discussed extensively here, of S&P um, upgrading uh, the economic risk score and the consequences 
that chain reaction of consequences through the risk weights rack ratios, SACPs, uh, to the uh, implied government support subpoena and the explicit ratings on tier two and hybrids. And that's just, a, I guess, a, a small list of the macro considerations that have been bumbling through our modest brains. And a shout out here, I will say, to SMP's outstanding banking analysts, Sharon Jane and Nico Delange, who have been impressive in their willingness to correctly call the consequences of these uh, macro conundrums, including the Royal Commission, the correction and subsequent recovery in housing conditions, and APRA's approach to forcing banks to build additional loss absorbing capacity. I guess this begs the question what are we thinking right now? And there are three core states of nature that occupy my mind. The first involves some known unknowns around the trade war and Brexit. <clears throat> For whatever reason, one or both of these events blow up in a manner that materially undermines global growth. The RBA is then forced to continue cutting towards its effective lower bound, which is either 0.5 or 0.25%. I think the RBA could think about 0.25%, <clears throat> but good luck, guys, getting passed through um, from the banks. The big four uh, have rightly given Martin Place the bird. They've given the uh, monetary policy mavens the finger on this so-called question of pass-through. They face unprecedented profitability cha challenges, as we've discussed, foisted on them by two key regulatory headwinds. The first is the ongoing deleveraging cycle that we've mentioned to boost equity and reduce balance sheet debt to safer levels. And, and as I discussed earlier, uh, we've seen two of the major banks do two very, very large equity capital raises uh, in the last month. And regular listeners will know that as a bank creditor, I welcome this dynamic, which is a good uh, which is obviously good for depositors and bondholders, but bad for shareholders who only want upside growth. That's not so bad for shareholders who are focused on risk-adjusted returns. But the truth is these equity guys made out like bandits for decades with the bank's crazy high 19% ROEs that um, we've um, ruminated on, and they were being subsidized by bank creditors, creditors accepting far too much leverage. The second headwind is the huge rise in regulatory risk aversion that's forcing the banks into being relatively monoline savings and loan utilities rather than the vertically integrated financial conglomerates they once aspired to be through exploiting their too big to fail cost of capital advantage to gobble up every tangential industry. And we actually warned of this dysfunction way back in 2014. And the resetting of this risk appetite is obviously another overdue transfer of wealth from equity to debt. With major bank returns on equity in the high single digits, um, they have to focus on business model sustainability. And so that's why I think we uh, were very, very comfortable with uh, CBA's decision to only pass on 13 basis points of the last RBA rate cut. And I would not want the banks to do any more than five basis points of the next move. And if the RBA is silly enough to go to 0.25%, guys expect nada. Uh, in this grim scenario, we probably get quantitative easing initially by buying government bonds and then extended to all the assets the RBA accepts as collateral with the two main goals of putting downward pressure on the currency, firstly, and then on a secondary level, uh, if they need to, reducing lenders' funding costs and ultimately domestic interest rates. The government will also, in this scenario, be compelled to drop its surplus target and loose, loosen fiscal policy. A much more positive scenario, which is, and I want to stress this, this is my central case, is one where local and global growth surprise on the upside in the next year as trade tensions dissipate, Brexit is sorted, and a combination of rate cuts around the world coupled with QE from both the ECB and Fed inject considerable new stimulus. I think here the RBA still cuts to 0.5% to try to hit its inflation employment targets uh, and probably launches a slimline version of uh, government bond QE. Finally, ScoMo and JFry get to look like rock stars because they're going to be delivering uh, large budget surpluses. 
A middle ground, which is probably the most, um, the next most likely contingency, is this ongoing geopolitical ructions, stymieing global and Aussie growth. So, you know, ongoing trade wars, Hong Kong dramas, and so forth, and making it hard for the RBA to get anywhere near its inflation and employment goals. Uh, so, the, here the RBA, I think, continues to cut. It does limited government bond QE and then runs a campaign to pressure the government to drop the surplus to support growth via fiscal policy. Uh, unfortunately, in this scenario, life could become very awkward for um, our old buddy Jay Fry. And Chris, while there is a lot of intellectual hysteria right now around QE, it just represents the RBA targeting a broader and more relevant range of interest rates than the theoretical overnight cash rate, which it must do once it hits the effective lower bound, or ELB. And it need not be a binary yes or no decision. There are some creative alternatives that involve others doing QE for the RBA. One example is simply adjusting APRA and the RBA's very strict, by global standards, collateral rules around what counts as liquid assets on a bank's balance sheet. If this definition was extended from just govy bonds to other assets that the RBA already accepts as collateral for its liquidity operations, the impact would be to encourage banks to shift capital into highly rated credit, which would reduce their funding costs and eventually local lending rates. Another option would be to relax the limits on the RBA's Committed Liquidity Facility, or CLF, to encourage more money towards these same assets. These limits were recently changed in a way that reduces returns on the bank's liquid assets, forcing them to hold more gubbies and the capital available for highly rated credit, which has increased funding costs and crimped profitability, paradoxically constraining the ability of the banks to pass on rate cuts. And that wraps up today's jam-packed episode. Again, guys, the podcast has been going absolutely bananas and Chris and I tremendously appreciate all the support and the feedback that we've been given on this. If you do have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email info at coolabarcapital.com. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.